Welcome to Countering Chinese Communist Party Influence Around the World, a production of the Vandenberg Coalition, where we shift the focus beyond the Indo-Pacific and into various regions around the world where the CCP continues to threaten the interests of the United States. The Vandenberg Coalition is a nonpartisan network dedicated to protecting American security, prosperity, and freedom through robust analysis of pressing national security threats and the promotion of a strong and proud American foreign policy. My name is Carrie Filippetti, and alongside leading experts, we are reshaping the conversation around the China challenge. In this final episode, we speak with Ambassador J. Peter Pham, a distinguished fellow with the Atlantic Council and former U.S. Special Envoy for the Sahel and for the Great Lakes region of Africa, and Alexandra Tertsu, a non-resident senior fellow with the Atlantic Council's Africa Center and founder and CEO of the geopolitical risk and public affairs consultancy, Magpie Advisory, on the new Scramble for Africa, a competition for influence and race for resources. We hope you enjoy. Thank you both for being here. Pleasure to be with you. So I want to start with a, um, a basic level set here. Um, so despite being home to 57 countries with a vast landscape for economic and diplomatic opportunity, Africa is often considered the somewhat forgotten continent for the U.S. foreign policy community. Starting off, and I'll start with you, um, Ambassador, why should the United States be paying greater attention to developments in Africa and specifically China's activities? Well, uh, thank you very much, uh, Kerry. And there are a number of reasons one could cite, but I'll just tick off a few of them. One, just on a very diplomatic level, Africa has 54 sovereign countries, uh, members of the African Union, who uh, represent the largest single voting bloc in any international assembly. So uh, we often complain about uh, our lack of influence in multilateral settings. And Africa tends to vote very much uh, oftentimes in blocks, and there are reasons we can get into that. So certainly for the sheer number of countries involved. Secondly, for the economy, uh, before the pandemic skewed things, uh, look at the year before the pandemic, 2019, and that year, five of the 10 fastest growing economies in the world were African countries. Uh, now, some of them started from very low bases, but still very strong growth. Uh, and that's over a, de a decade as well. Thirdly, population. By mid-century, one in four working age persons in the world is going to be an African. Uh, so it's a great dynamic, but it's also a potential challenge. And finally, we talk a lot about energy transition, new technologies, and many of the critical minerals necessary for uh, these changes in our lives, in our technology, depend on inputs out of Africa. Again, just one statistic to throw out there. Cobalt, uh, necessary for electric batteries uh, and for a number of other uses, and two-thirds of the known reserves of cobalt in the world come from one country, the Democratic Republic of Congo, in the heart of Africa. And uh, most of that, and we get, we'll get into this, I'm sure, is control, production is controlled by Chinese firms at the moment. Alexandra, what else would you add to that? I, I think I'd like to kind of jump on what Ambassador Pham said regarding the, the you know, 54 African countries that, that vote together or, or are making now um, critical decisions. I mean, looking ahead, Africa's geopolitical and economic influence, as Ambassador Pham alluded to, is only going to grow over time. And particularly in this um, current geopolitical environment in which we find ourselves, where we have um, China competing, the U.S. competing, also other powers that are also increasing their interest in in the African region, 
um, African governments are increasingly thinking about how to maneuver, how to navigate, how to align or how not to align themselves. And the decisions that they are making now and, and will make down the line have implications, obviously, for what the African continent will look like down the road, but arguably also what the international community might look like down the road as well. So it's an incredibly important region, and, and I'm glad that we're having this conversation to, to shed more light on it. I'd like to talk about the kind of contrast between China's regional goals and maybe the United States' regional goals. So what would you describe as China's current either regional or country-specific focus in Africa? In a sense, what are what are the overarching aims that are animating Beijing's Africa policy? Well, I would say Beijing's approach to Africa is characterized by a very strategic outlook. Now, we don't want to uh, fill that with some sort of magical approach, uh, uh, but it has been. It's been long-term. Uh, and strategies and policies adopted play out over time. Uh, started back in the days, uh, 1950s, the, the Badung Conference in Indonesia, when Zhou Enlau, you know, articulated the five uh, principles of peaceful coexistence, which became basis for the non-aligned movement and a lot of Chinese entree, uh, to seeking resources necessary for, under Deng Xiaoping and Hu Jintao for China's peaceful rise, as they called it, uh, uh, they needed to modernize agriculture, industry, technology, and defense, all of which needed resources. And then, increasingly, a geopolitical uh, and geostrategic uh, pivot under uh, Xi Jinping uh, to wanting democracy in international relations as you know one of his catchwords, uh, uh, or uh, to build up comprehensive national power, another one of his slogans, and reshape the international balance of power, all in the interest of advancing the Chinese dream, the Zhongguomeng, that has been one of his themes. And so it's been very strategic, and they've managed to do this simultaneously across the whole of government, uh, and the whole of government being the whole of society. We're dealing with an authoritarian, totalitarian system with credits uh, given uh, diplomatic relations, advance, deals made, and I'm sure we'll get into the Belt and Road Initiative. And so it's an iterated approach, whereas ours has been, approach has been neglectful at times. Uh, when I began my career, uh, it was a period when the U.S. actually had a document called the uh, U.S. Strategy for Sub-Saharan Africa, which declared that the U.S. had no strategic interest there. Uh, this was 1995 under the Clinton administration. We've evolved since then uh, for the better, but it gives you an idea of how inconsistent we can be over time. Alexander, do you agree with Ambassador Pham's uh, sort of um, characterization of both the U.S. And, and Chinese ambitions in the region? I do, yes. It's also interesting when you look, you know, China with its... Um, without the relations that it maintains, not only in Africa, but but globally, it, it tends to classify or it has various classifications of these relations. So on the, let's say, bottom end of that, you have what the CCP broadly calls normal diplomatic relations. And that goes through various degrees, sort of ending with comprehensive strategic partnerships and then comprehensive strategic cooperative partnerships, which is the highest classification. And today, if, across the African region, there are about slightly over a dozen countries that have that highest classification and, and another another 
dozen more or so that that are considered comprehensive strategic partnerships. But if you look at that highest classification, that includes the likes of the Democratic Republic of Congo, Mozambique, Ethiopia, Sierra Leone, um, and a handful of others. And they, they don't really have an obvious or immediate common denominator, which I think very much speaks to what Ambassador Pham was alluding to, which is kind of the breadth and the depth of Chinese strategic interests across the across the region. And so far as today, you wouldn't really pinpoint a particular regional um, focus per se, because it really cuts quite widely. Um, also across, as Ambassador Pham alluded to, it involves economic interest, it involves political interest, very much soft power interests um, as well that span education, culture, um, security. So China very much has a an all of the above um, approach to the African region. And this is also reflected in several of the white papers that it has issued um, as it pertains to its relations with the with the continent. Its 2015 paper um, on Africa already stressed the role of the continent in building a community of, of a common destiny, um, which is the Chinese Communist Party sort of parlay for a global governance regime that broadly reflects um, its values. That was emphasized again in, in the 2021 um, CCP white paper on, on China-Africa relations in a new era, as, as it was called. Um, and that, in, in no uncertain terms, also lays out that China or and Africa are important partners um, in advancing the reform of the international system and reshaping the international order. Um, and so when you begin to unpack what all of that implicates, um, it's a, a very robust and comprehensive uh, approach towards the continent, whereas Ambassador Pham has pointed out, you know, we either did not particularly have um, one or ours tends to be perhaps more um, siloed in, in particular areas or focused um, on particular sectors and, and less holistic than, than what the Chinese are pursuing in the region. Do you see that, Alexandra, changing at all in terms of the like being more holistic? Now we're recognizing whether it's because of the threat China poses or whether it's because just Africa is Africa is seen as much more critical to the United States. Or is it still similar to how Ambassador Pham described it, you know, when he was working um, in the in the 90s as sort of like a um, as I've mentioned in the start, the sort of like forgotten continent? I think there's a growing realization that there's quite a bit of catching up that the U.S. does need to do with respect to its African policy, whether that's um, bolstering the the private sector in terms of how it invests and where it invests in the continent, perhaps engaging strategically or more diplomatically um, with various governments. But I don't yet see, and perhaps Ambassador Pham has more of an eye on this at the moment than I do being perched stateside. Um, but I, I don't yet see a, a comprehensive strategy evolving in that kind of fashion. It still strikes me as as incredibly piecemeal and at the moment also very um, reactionary insofar as the Biden administration, prior administrations have realized that, oh, there is um, China, which is a credible threat in, in the region, um, particularly or potentially also to U.S. strategic interests. So we are at the moment very much responding um, to China's presence, responding now also to, to Russia's presence in the region, rather than thinking more strategically about our national security interests in the region and how to meaningfully partner with our African allies in a way that's not just short-term and reactionary, but that allows us to build 
long-term relations in the region. Um, Ambassador Pham, when we talk, of, we, we've been talking a lot about sort of China's view of Africa. What is Africa's view of China? Well, I think that, interestingly enough, is evolving as well. Uh, certainly, if one goes back historically uh, to the days of the Badung Conference, the Non-Aligned Movement, the barefoot Chinese doctors that were sent to Africa in the early 60s before the Cultural Revolution, there's a lot of goodwill that China built up during those years, uh, and that's undeniable. Then China kind of turned into its own internal strife with the Cultural Revolution, uh, and then uh, after the death of Mao with Deng Xiaoping and trying to reform inter, and it kind of shut down a bit on Africa, it retreated, uh, and there was a moment and opportunity there. Uh, unfortunately, neither the, the United States or any of its allies really picked up that slack. So when China came roaring back as it needed resources, it you know uh, had an opening, uh, and I think that. That's what we bore in mind, that there were moments, and we shouldn't miss these opportunities. But increasingly, and this is a, a very interesting uh, development I've witnessed uh, firsthand in, in recent years, has been that Africans, you know, we tend to forget Africans have agency, and I really appreciate your question, and they react to them. Uh, they're not just passive recipients of aid or investment, and they react, and the fact is Chinese officials... Uh, can't help but be who they are. And there is a residual, and I, you know, I, I'm comfortable calling it out, there's a residual racism uh, that it often doesn't get called out. I mean, even the word, uh, you know, uh, the Chinese word for Africa, Fei Chou, has an extremely negative connotation. If you look at the, uh, the roots of the two characters that form that word, and it builds into that, and since this is probably family broadcast, I won't get into the uh, into the uh, uh, origins of that, but that does in fact culture. And Africans are turning back. I I remember a conversation with a very very senior CCP official uh, a number of years ago who admitted to me uh, this is over uh, you know a long banquet in the days before austerity and Xi Jinping and more than a, a few shots of Mao Tai. And he admitted that actually the number of scholarships that China gives Africa and these are in the tens of thousands they never get filled. Uh, they've never managed to fill the full quota, and that says something. So I would say there's a there's an opportunity there, and I'm sure Alexander can jump into this, but we have to seize it. Yeah, and Alexander, you have a, a whole book sort of diving into you know how Africans view their relationship uh, with uh, with China. It's called China and Africa: How Africans and Their Government Are Shaping Relations with China. So. How how much leverage do African um, state actors have when dealing with Beijing? Yeah, sure. Before I answer that, maybe just piggybacking a little bit on on some of Ambassador Famer's remarks, also regarding regarding agency and and African agency. The the China African narrative has for a long time still been very one directional. Even now, we're we're thinking about and discussing what China is doing in Africa, how it's doing it, where it's investing, and so on and so forth. And I think largely what that largely misses is this point regarding agency, but that does two things. I think on the one hand, it um, removes, if we look at the level of state actors, for instance, it removes some kind of accountability and responsibility actually from African governments. We hear a lot about debt trap diplomacy um, uh, and, and, and Chinese predatory lending, and there's certainly a lot to, to be said about that. 
But it bears recalling that on the other side of the proverbial table were also individuals, African government officials who are signing these deals and, you know, full knowledge or at least some knowledge of, of the terms being being presented to them. So this narrative, in a way, kind of, in my opinion, ab absolves um, the other side of the equation. Um, and then from our perspective as well, and so far as we're very focused on, let's say, the Chinese side of the story, um, as Ambassador Pham alluded to, we're missing an opportunity to constructively think through on what grounds are some of these decisions being made from the African standpoint? What's animating um, their decision making? What variables are are factoring in? What concerns do they have? And then perhaps meeting them um, where, where they are and coming to the table with some uh, proposal that could be equally or to some degree attractive. Um, to your question about um, leverage, I'm afraid I'm going to give a, a very poor um, classic political science answer insofar as it depends. Um, and it really depends and it varies from country to country and it varies sometimes within countries as well. Um, and uh, there are many factors that animate that. Some of those are the political institutions, the legitimacy, the transparency, accountability, of the African political institutions, whether that be Nigeria or Kenya or wherever we might be looking, um, the space given to civil society, um, things like freedom of expression, the role of free enterprise in any particular um, given country. So there are a lot of factors that that influence the extent to which various entities might, might exercise agency. Um, on the state level, though, you, there have been some um, let's say, trends or, or some strategies that have uh, emerged over the years. You see some countries like Ethiopia, Djibouti, for instance, um, they've started to play China, not only those, but others as well, sort of play China off of off, off of it, their competitors. So Ethiopia and, and Djibouti um, leveraging their strategic position in the Horn of Africa to exploit a little bit of the Gulf rivalry um, also for for influence in in that region and some of its dealings with the China with their Chinese counterparts, Ethiopian officials would or do sometimes hint that you know oh gee you know funding that comes from the Qataris well that doesn't necessarily lead us into debt distress, um so playing these partners off of each other a little bit um and in some other cases countries have just been able to improve their their negotiating tactics so for instance in Botswana and Senegal Tanzania as well i believe um there are technical departments that manage negotiations with chinese entities where the presidency tends to take a little bit more of of a backseat and that allows for perhaps in some cases more disciplined um approach to negotiations sidestepping some of those personalized deal makings um, and that has allowed for, in the case of um, Tanzania, for instance, um, with respect to its Bagamoyo port, um, which has been a, a fairly contentious issue, but the Tanzanian Port Authority has been able to negotiate that deal a little bit on, on its terms, um, reducing the lease period, for instance, from the classic 99 years down, down to 33. So you do see um, pockets where where agency is is being exercised also on the also on the substate level, but it very much depends again on on the institutions and the nature of the African state that's in question. I would say. I want to ask a few questions about the United States and our role, but before I do, whenever we talk about China, um, you know, I'm a I'm a huge believer that that you know great power competition is obviously back, and Russia is a major component of that as well. So what is this sort of interaction between China and Russia in Africa? What does that look like? Well, that's, uh, I uh, 
hate to keep returning to the same phrase, but it is, we're in a very dynamic time and it is evolving. Uh, uh, Russia had retreated in the Yeltsin years back from Africa, closed scores of embassies, called in its debts, and in fact, put a number of African countries into distress because debts were being called in uh, at that time. But since Putin uh, took over in 2000, it has been slowly coming back and looking for up. But Russia doesn't have the resources, as we've seen quite clearly uh, since uh, the war against uh, Ukraine and the Russian invasion uh, last year, that Russia doesn't have the resources the Soviet Union once had. Uh, and so they look for their opportunists. They're looking for oppor chances where a little bit of investment, uh, often through proxies, although that's evolving too since Prigozhin uh, took that fatal plane flight, uh, that's evolving as well, but using proxies or using uh, opportunities, and often their self-goals. A good example was uh, Mali. Mali had a coup in 2020. We called it a coup. I was the special envoy for the Sahel. We cut off direct military assistance, but we still engaged with the junta. And so uh, while we, I was in office, there was Russia was not on the scene. There was no Wagner. There were no mercenaries. Uh, we had a robust dialogue going uh, with the junta. After I left office, the Biden administration took a very doctrinaire view and ended up in the, I don't want to get sidetracked into this, but ended up denying a sale, not a gift, but a sale of a non-lethal military part to a transport plane that the Malians desperately needed. That led the Malians to try to appeal, couldn't get it done. Long story short, uh, Mali's foreign minister, Abdullahi Diop, met with uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov at the United Nations, and he said, come to Moscow, we've got planes, we've got other things, and the rest is history. So sometimes it's self-goals uh, as well, and we have to be careful. As for China, how it factors into this, there have been cases that we've noted where actually their, their interests clash, but they've tried to minimize those because clearly China has the upper hand uh, uh, in the relationship, not just in Africa, but really globally. And, and Alexandra, um, I asked earlier, you know, what, what Africans' view of China is. Other side of that, what are Africans' sort of views of the United States? It's also, I think, um, I, I'm going to borrow Ambassador to spam terminology evolving <laughs> um, very much in, in the current um in the current environment. And, you know, it's interesting. There's a, the most recent Afrobarometer survey. I don't know if it's the most recent one, but the one from 2020, um, it looked at favorability towards African favorability towards um, China and African favorability towards the, the U.S. and the U.S.-led model. And I, the margin was incredibly small, but still by and large factored um, or favored, excuse me, the, the U.S. And, and the U.S.-led led way of, of doing things. And if you dug into those numbers a little bit more and broke them down by age demographics, it was largely the, the younger population um, that continued to, to favor, let's say, the, the American way of doing things insofar as you know, our continued emphasis on democracy and, and values as opposed to, to corruption and, and these other, um, these other things. Um, so, but I think the, there's also a recognition that, um, the U S has not been, let's say, um, always, uh, uh, 
reliable partner for for the African region. Um, and so I might pass this actually to Ambassador Pham, given his ex his expertise on the ground. Um, but the, it's very much a, a much a mixed bag in terms of you know how Africans are viewing the U.S. engagement and and what demographic um, you look at. Um, so it's I'll pass that one to to Ambassador Pham. And I would say I I think uh, Alexander is quite correct that there's a desire on the part of many Africans a plurality and certainly among uh, a solid majority among youth for America's way of doing things. And that's very important to keep in mind that the youth are Africa. Uh, the median age across the continent as a whole is roughly 19. Uh, it's a very youthful. So when you're talking about the youth think something, that's really a majority uh, uh, of Africans uh, writ large think a certain way. But they're also impatient. You know, It's easy for someone my age to say two or three years, that's you know moving quickly. Uh, but two or three years, four years, for someone who's 16, 17, that's their whole lives for all intents and purposes. Uh, and so they need results. They need to feel that their concerns are being addressed and they need to see change. And that is where, unfortunately, uh, it's one of the advantages, comparative advantages that autocracies have. They can make decision make decisions quickly and implement them quickly. Uh, Financing for projects. Uh, you can get financing from a, a, a Chinese parastatal. They come with financing. It can be delivered. And if you're a politician wanting to see that road build or that soccer stadium or that shiny new building put up before your next uh, election, China can do it. They can have probably a decision for you within a matter of weeks, if not sooner. Deal sign and construction begun. Uh, even where the U.S. government endorses something, uh, even at the highest levels, uh, it, it takes time. Uh, the, the recent announcements of infrastructure in Africa at, at the G7 summit in Japan or the G20 in India, if you read, you know, as uh, uh, in, well, Beltway Insider, read the press releases from the White House, there's a lot of doing due diligence, uh, doing which means that actually the deal isn't done yet. Uh, we have to announce something because the president's there, but in fact, the bureaucracy hasn't moved as quickly as the president, uh, and he's not moving quickly. Uh, so it, it really is a real challenge when, you know, our development finance corporation takes years uh, to get a deal done when the Chinese can do it in two weeks. Um, Ambassador, if I could just... Yes, please. Sorry, if I could just quickly jump in as well on the point regarding um, regarding youth and youth still by and large favoring the the American approach. Um, the other concern with that is that a lot of China's efforts um, in Africa, when you move beyond the economics and the infrastructure more towards, let's say, soft power interests in terms of education and culture, by and large, those are very much or almost entirely targeted towards Africa's youth. Um, the training of, of journalists, the, they're training the next cohort of up-and-coming journalists, security training for military officers, security personnel. A great deal of that is targeting the, the African youth, and intentionally so, and Xi Jinping has been very open about that as well. So while, you know, the, the combination of, of the impatience um, plus China's strategic kind of approach towards the, the continent's younger population... Um, might mean that in a few years down the line, that 
you know, 60% might be thinking a, a, a slightly different way as well, um, which is why I think, you know, from a U.S. policy standpoint, too, we need to be thinking not just about competing with China or engaging the continent economically, but thinking about many of these other variables um, as well in terms of, again, what what those relations are going to look like several years down the line, too. If, if I can just jump in on, on that point that Alexandra made, uh, let me cite just two examples of how far-sighted Chinese uh, strategy is and how committed they are. Uh, in 2014, almost a decade ago, the uh, the ANC, uh, the African National Congress, South Africa's ruling party, opened a political leadership school in Ventruskroon uh, in the Transvaal. Uh, and it was a direct partnership with the CCP's Executive Leadership Academy, Pudong, in Shanghai. China signed an agreement. Uh, the Chinese ambassador then in South Africa, Tian Zhuzhang, signed an, a deal with the then ANC Secretary General, Wei Mantashe, who's since become the Minister of Mineral Resources and Energy. That's a whole different uh, uh, art topic I could get into. 75 million US dollars the CCP invested in this school uh, a decade ago, which will train the leadership of South Africa in the future and includes programs for exchange, et cetera. If we think we have problems with South Africa today, wait till those cadres uh, uh, take charge of the ruling party. And then just last year, uh, in uh, just right outside Dar es Salaam, uh, China opened a, uh, with a $40 million investment direct from the CCP Central Party School, opened the Nigeri Leadership School, a training school for Tanzanian and uh, party officials from the governing party in Tanzania, plus six other Southern African countries. It's, it's a fabulous uh, uh, campus with 300 rooms, uh, hotel suite rooms, to train the leadership of the ruling parties of these countries. So they're, they're investing very specifically in political leaders. And, you know, those are sums larger than appropriations for the International Republican Institute or the uh, National Democratic Institute or uh, the National Endowment for Democracy. Ambassador Pham, you, you've criticized the Biden administration. Um, they recently said that they were all in for Africa. Um, and then uh, in last December's uh, U.S.-African Leadership Summit, President Biden didn't actually have any bilateral um, with any African nation. Um, at the same time, in the 10 years between 2007 and 2017, um, we saw Xi uh, take uh, 79 visits uh, to Africa. So um, how how do you feel, how important do you feel that sort of, you know, diplomatic engagement is and how might the United States revitalize our diplomatic engagement with African nations? Well, you know, African countries, many of them came to independence the hard way through liberation struggles. So the, the sense of uh, national dignity, of course, is very, very important. And for leaders, it, it confers a legitimation on them. So it's very important to them how they're received, uh, that they have meetings. Uh, and yet, you know, we don't seem to get it. Uh, the last state dinner for any African president was in the George W. Bush administration for uh, President John Kufour uh, of Ghana. And we've gone, we've gone a decade and a half without a state dinner for a single African president. Uh, that's extraordinary. Uh, 
uh, and yet we talk about how important Africa is. Uh, yes, it's nice to have visits, and it's nice to have the Secretary of State, the Secretary of the Treasury, the First Lady, the Vice President, and later this year, the President drop in. But those are in one-off photo ops. Uh, what comes behind and the engagement, those personal relationships, you know, uh, I cite another example. Uh, there have been lots of statements about how important Angola is to the United States, and I argue it is. And yet, uh, you know, it's not, it's an open secret in Washington how hard the Angolans have been begging, lobbying, pleading, arguing for a White House sit down for President Joao Lorenzo, who we uh, view as an ally and we're investing large sums in the Lobito Corridor. We talk about that in the region. And yet he can't get a photo op uh, by the fireplace in the Oval Office. Um, I want to jump to BRI because this is obviously a central component of China's engagement um, throughout the world, but I think especially in Africa. So, Alexandra, can you sort of walk us through um, how the Belt and Road Initiative sort of started and how it's evolved in the African region? Sure, and I guess it's quite good timing that we're discussing this as it's uh, more or less the 10-year anniversary of the BRI. So our, our timing is quite opportune in that respect um, as well. Um, but the BRI came out really um, as a large connectivity project. It was initially actually targeted primarily towards towards the Asian region, not only, but then spun out from, from there. In the early um, years, so 2013, 2014, the main modes of engagement were by and large economic um, investment, uh, infrastructure, a lot of what we tend to hear about and, and read about in, in the news. Um, and over the years, it's really expanded, I think, quite far beyond that. I think the best way that I describe it these days really is, is as more of a platform, a platform that the CCP uses to launch other um, policy initiatives. You now have, for instance, other initiatives that, that the party um, has recently sort of elevated, the Global Security Initiative, the Global um, Civilization Initiative, the Global Development Initiative, all of these have come out more or less in the in the past year or so. And now, if you are by and large a signatory to the Belt and Road Initiative, you are also almost de facto signing up for or will be likely asked to sign up for these other initiatives that carry a much more political, um, diplomatic dimension as well. So there's been the steady evolution, I would say, from perhaps focusing um, more on on the economic dimensions of of China's engagement in in Africa and arguably elsewhere, and to a shift to a more political um, focus, and that might also be a, a, a you know a result or or a byproduct of of the Chinese economy being in, in some trouble at home and not being able to expand as much or extend as much overseas. So that's one dimension of it too. And then, you know, we often tend to think about it in terms of roads, rails, and and kind of more um, traditional infrastructure. But when you look at over the last few years, too, where a good deal of the investments have been going, it's that as well. But we now have the digital Silk Road and we have data centers. There's an increased focus on AI, on advanced technologies, on partnerships um, along Belt and Road countries in educational institutions for cooperation in these um, advanced technologies. Part of that now is also the um, information space corridor through which China is engaging, trying to engage some African partners and, and also partners around the world. So it's really an evolved, I think, from 
um, perhaps a more narrow focus to now being, uh, as I describe it, a kind of platform or an umbrella um, under which there are many other policy initiatives that begin to to come into play. Um, and that makes it, I think, um, worth worth keeping uh, a very concerted eye on as well, too. And Ambassador Pham, how, how prevalent is BRI in Africa? How many signatories are there, for example? And what can the United States do to counter it? One could probably say, and I, uh, Alexandra will correct me, but almost every African country has a BRI program, with the exception of Eswatini, which is the last uh, country in Africa to still maintain diplomatic relations uh, with uh, the Republic of China on Taiwan. And interestingly enough, uh, a unrecognized but de facto state, Somaliland in uh, in the northern part of Somalia, which is building a which has built a huge port uh, in the finest harbor between Suez and and Durban, and it's a very interesting example of how one can actually use some of China's hangups against it. It's a it's built and managed by uh, Dubai Ports World, uh, but the British government has now invested in the expansion of it. Uh, it and Alexandra mentioned earlier, Ethiopia hedging. This provides an alternative outlet to the sea for Ethiopia uh, instead of the railway, Chinese-built railway to Djibouti and the port controlled there. So it's a very interesting uh, development, this port at Berbera, because Somaliland has actually diplomatic relations with Taiwan. So there's a there's an interesting little play there. Um, uh, but almost everywhere else, you've got uh, BRI in one form or another. And, and what are the best ways for us to try to counter that? Well, I think we're beginning to develop something. Uh, and, you know, I've criticized the Biden administration, but one area where the, I think they have done well uh, and has uh, been this idea of strategic corridors. Uh, the most famous was the libido corridor uh, running from the port uh, in Angola, that name, uh, by rail to the Democratic Republic of Congo and then to Zambia, and now you you hear talk of extending it all the way to the Indian Ocean. And this corridor is an integrated corridor, not just the rail transport for export of minerals, but also a communications corridor with fiber, telecommunications, uh, movement of people, food security. So it's, an, uh, it's a holistic thing through strategic areas. And there have been discussions of other areas where a little bit of investment, a little bit of facilitation and what can develop across sub-regions of Africa, a structure that not only helps countries uh, export and reach the world, but integrate with each other. You know, Africa has the lowest level of any sub-region in the, wor region in the world of, of trade between neighbors. Uh, and so this helps in that regard. So this is something that certainly is a good start. It's been highlighted by the White House. I'll give them credit for that. But this is where the bureaucracy also uh, lags behind. Uh, the Development Finance Corporation, which was almost unanimously passed uh, by Congress in the Trump administration, signed a law by President Trump five years ago uh, it, uh, in the USA Build Act, for example, uh, its decision-making is glacial. Uh, less than half of its authorized capital has actually been committed, much less dispersed. Uh, and earlier this year, they organized a collective bargaining unit for the employees there, and they crow about a victory that they put off a reorganization of the agency by a year. Uh, so, you know, there, there, there is an example where 
even where the Biden administration and the White House lead try to go somewhere, but that you know they have constraints politically and uh, here at home. And and Alexander, how, what concerns did you have about BRI in China, and how how do you recommend the U.S. Um, address it and counter it? Yeah, sure. I think building also on on what Ambassador Pham mentioned and what we were speaking about a little bit earlier, too, in terms of U.S. policy being a, a bit more or much more siloed than the more comprehensive approach, um, building on this libido um, uh, corridor, it runs to to Angola um, or will would run to will run to Angola, um, with which the, the U.S. recently signed, among other countries, the Partnership for Atlantic Cooperation. Um, which is uh, an agreement signed between the U.S., 31 other countries across Africa, Latin America, and a few in Europe, um, which I think was part of the administration's attempt to begin to shore up relations with the um, global south to to signal um, interest there. Um, and to Ambassador Spam's earlier point, as a little bit of an old goal, by and large, that partnership focuses entirely or does focus entirely on sustainability and on climate change. On their own, this is fine. But it goes on to say that it explicitly will not focus on governance, will not focus on security, will not focus on matters of defense. And we're, I think our challenge or our problem is that we continue to think of things in this piecemeal fashion. If we're building out a corridor that's going to run to Angola eventually, then surely we need to be thinking about, and there are other mechanisms, but also be thinking more strategically about, for instance, this partnership for Atlantic cooperation and, and broadening and broadening the purviews. So I think that there's you know, a, a case to be made um, about U.S. policy perhaps putting the pieces together a little bit more than than we do. And as Ambassador Fan said, this is a great start. But then what's next? And what other pieces of the puzzle need to then connect to this corridor? What other policy measures, you know, for instance, off the coast of Angola, off of the west coast of, of Africa, countries struggle with illicit fishing, with arms and drugs trafficking. There's a case to be made that those issues also need to be addressed in the context of this corridor. So broadening the purview of, of how we're thinking about policy issues and not thinking so, let's say, one-dimensionally or, or narrowly um, is something I'd say that you know, the Biden administration perhaps um, ought to be um, thinking about more strategically as well. So several countries that signed on to China's Belt and Road Initiative are now sort of struggling to pay back their loans. So I guess my question is twofold. Number one, um, Based on this, do you think it's fair to describe what China's doing with Belt and Road in Africa as this term that was thrown out earlier, debt trap diplomacy? Or do you think that's an inaccurate description? And then secondarily, does their inability to repay these loans create an opening for the United States or the West to approach these countries with better economic alternatives? And maybe Alexander on this one, I'll start with you and then go to Ambassador Pham. Sure. I think there is a certain fairness in characterizing um, China's activities along the BRI in Africa as a kind of debt trap diplomacy. And we've seen that the conditions on which many of these loans were um, extended were um, sort of impossible to to meet and to repay to begin with. Um, and then we and many of these deals, the let's say collateral was a port or a critical infrastructure um, in in any given country. Um, so that makes, you know, that that speaks to to that to, to some extent. What I will say, though, again, kind of coming back to the point of African agency is in as much as there were 
the Chinese extending these loans, there were also African governments that were accepting some of the terms. So in that sense, it takes it takes two to tangle a little bit. So I would say yes, but let's not forget the the other side of this. You know, as Ambassador Pham said, you know, the Chinese will do what they'll do and they'll be what they'll be. Um, but there's somebody again accepting or or rejecting the terms and conditions that that are being offered. And I think, yes, you know, now that there are countries that have come under debt distress and you see other partners, um, foreign foreign actors beginning to position themselves as well. Again, if we go back to the example of, of Ethiopia and other foreign countries, you have many Gulf partners that are coming in, the, the Turkish, the Israelis, very actively so, um, and and presenting alternatives to in alternative financing options to to these countries, to other countries as a way of um, capitalizing on on the opportunity. And so in that context, there's also an opportunity for the U.S. to to come to the table um, and and put something uh, in this, sorry, <laughs> it's late here, um, and and put forward some some options and and proposals. Um, the question is, you know, do we have the the political will and is there the strategy there for us to do so in a kind of um, concerted and, and meaningful way that will be well received? Ambassador Fan. Well, I, I, I think Alexander's point is very well taken, that it does take two to tango, but very often uh, a response, again, and it's not always justified, but in many cases it is, uh, from African interlocutors is they would love to have an option, They would, but they often don't have. Uh, so it's easy to criticize you know, an African country for giving Huawei uh, the opportunity to build the backbone of its digital communications, but... Uh, if not Huawei, who uh, uh, that comes with the uh, financing, with the opportunity, and very often there isn't an America. Now, in uh, in telecommunications, there literally is one U.S.-owned uh, telecom operator uh, operating on the African continent. Full disclosure: I'm the lead uh, uh, independent director of that uh, of that company, but I'm not here to do a pitch for that. But there should be others. We shouldn't be out there by our ourselves. And then there has to be support. China, Huawei can come. First, Huawei is subsidized. Its prices, its list price, which no one ever pays, is 30% lower than competing technologies, secure technologies from a Nokia or an Ericsson. And then, of course, they discount it, bring vendor finance, uh, do other sorts of things. And so you're, if you're going to go with secure technology, you're making a commitment uh, to have capital expenditures twice, if not more, than your competitors. That's a, that's a heavy load, and you can, it can be done, but it's, it's tough. I, I know that firsthand. But beyond that, you know, at least there's an option there. Uh, other countries don't even have an option. Uh, uh, when I was in the Trump administration, we had the case of one country that wanted, they, they, they had heard our preaching about secure technologies, about, uh, and they didn't want a Huawei-led consortium doing the, the government's data protection. But the terms, the commercial terms they could get from a U.S.-led uh, consortium would have led to the International Monetary Fund dinging them because of the debt. And it took a bit of work, and I worked with the NSC uh, and uh, others in the U.S. We finally put together a package, a little bit of conjoling, a bit of cutting and pasting, and you know a little bit of begging and pleading uh, and calling in personal favors, but we put together a package for them. It took a bit of work, but we got it for them. But, you know, how often does that happen? And maybe not often enough would be my response. 
I want to spend the last portion of our discussion talking about critical minerals, um, which has obviously uh, really dominated the foreign policy discussion, not only as it relates to Africa, but as it relates to competition with China in general. So China currently accounts for over 60% of global production and 85% of production capacity for critical minerals. And as both of you know, Africa is home to over a third of the world's mineral deposits. Um, so that makes African nations really central in this. Um, it's also centrally important to African nations, right? Because this could potentially help power their future development. Um, obviously, state-backed Chinese companies are deeply entrenched in um, in the mining and processing of these minerals in Africa, which leaves little room for both um, Africans and uh, American participation. So just as an overarching question, do you think that China's engagement in this sector is an intentional sort of weaponization of the supply chains? Or do you think this was something that, you know, they started to create partnerships and kind of wandered into this by by, by happy accident? Oh, I, I, I very much think it was strategic. First, I, I would say their strategy evolved. First, it was simply to get the resources they needed for development. Mm -hmm. But then as they saw the potential, especially with certain critical minerals, it became very, very obvious that it was unintentional. Talk, let me talk about a couple of them. Rare earths, for example. Uh, China doesn't need rare earths from anywhere else. Uh, nature has given China an abundance of, of exploitable rare earth. Now, they do it with great environmental degradation and all that, but they have it in mainland China. But they still try to gobble up those uh, uh, mining assets around the globe, including in Africa. And, you know, if you go to La Rochelle in France, uh, and I'm, I'll admit I'm somewhat of a Francophile as well, there's a use, what used to be the world's largest rare earth processing plant, uh, the, uh, the Rome Poulenc plant in La Rochelle. It's now an art co-op uh, because a price war drove the company out of the business and all the business now goes to China. Almost over 90% of the world's rare earths are processed now in China, it touches the Chinese value chain at some point. Uh, and that's an example. It was intentional. Uh, we saw that earlier uh, this year when China required an export license to export two relatively minor but important uh, elements, uh, uh, germanium uh, being one of them. And again, it was intentional. It was to send a signal. Uh, and this repeats its way out. However, I would say uh, that there is an opening if we play it very, very carefully. China extracts these rare earths, many and other critical minerals, many of which are critical for the energy transition. Not only does it extract them, but it sends them to China for processing. Now, how green, if you're interested in uh, decarbonization, if you're interested in getting to net zero, how green is it to put ore on truck, diesel trucks, drive them a thousand miles to the Indian Ocean, uh, on bumpy roads, put them on boats, and send them to China. Uh, uh, you know, I'd love someone to do a a, a really rigorous uh, study of the the amount of the carbon footprint of shipping these things to China uh, for processing and then consolidating the, the supply chains. Uh, and the value is not captured by the African countries where these minerals begin. And there, I think, is the opportunity. Let's encourage African countries to develop processing there. It's much greener, and in fact, processing can be done in a very green way in Africa, and even mining. Uh, a good example uh, uh, 
is in the Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, where, for example, the, one of the world's largest copper mines, uh, uh, held by a, a Canadian firm, uh, Ivanhoe, is virtually green. Uh, Ninety-some percent of its energy comes from hydro or solar. Uh, employs 20,000 Congolese, all that, but it's green. It can be done in Africa. Now, processing, that requires further investment. But these things can be done, and it allows African countries to provide jobs for their young people and capture the value chain, and it de-risks. Uh, the, the biggest challenge for the U.S. is having, you know, the statistics you've 80, 90 percent of the supply chain running through China. If it runs through a diversified mix, that's the key. And Alexandra, same question to you, but with an addition on it, which is what recommendations do you have for the United States to try to address this and, and you know, um, assure some control over critical mineral supply chains in our competition with China? Sure. To, to take the earlier part, I agree with Ambassador Pham wholeheartedly that this is a, a very strategic play on, on the part of, of China to um, weaponize or, or monopolize these, these supply chains. I think, you know, we tend to forget, and hopefully that comes out of our conversation as well, that the Chinese have been taking and do take a very long-term perspective, um, not only on Africa, but on their own foreign policy. They didn't wake up yesterday and say, oh, gee, we would like to refashion the world order, and oh, gee, we need some critical um, uh, minerals to help us do that, and, and Africa is here. So, I mean, you've seen this in motion for um, at least the last decade, if not longer, um, when it comes to uh, critical minerals, when it comes to many of the other aspects that that we've been talking about. So it has sort of been a, a slow roll evolving in the way that Ambassador Pham has has outlined. Um, so very strategic and very intentional on, on China's part when it comes to critical minerals, when it comes, we could also make a similar argument when it comes to um, food security and, and um, agriculture and China's imports and, and imports of agriculture and it's um, buying up of farmlands in, in Africa and elsewhere as well. Um, so there's there's a there's a much more concerted and comprehensive thinking um, behind that. I think in terms of you know what the US can do to begin to, to shore up, um, we recently signed or the, the mineral mineral security cooperation or, or pact, I forget the exact term, forgive me, um, the mineral security, the name eludes me. Um, what <laughs> do you remember, Doctor? Uh, yeah. Partnership. There we go. Thank you. <laughs> um, and I mean, there we're starting to cooperate with our European partners, with other partners around the world to begin to shore up supply chains um, elsewhere. What I think missing from that um, securities partnership, mineral securities partnership, are African countries. Um, I think that was another kind of oversight where African countries should also perhaps be brought into the fold on these kinds of high level global global agreements. Um, so more of that, more engaging with our with our partners um, in regions where um, we have shared interests, shared norms, um, values, um, and where we know that we can begin to to work together. So I think we're starting to take steps in that direction. Um, but we might be uh, we might have to pick up the pace a little bit in in that regard. You know, some African countries also you know, realizing, as you alluded to, the importance of these minerals for their own economic development, have also started to issue export controls themselves um, on on some critical minerals. So we have to you know really be thinking quite quickly about how to how to um, strategize and and how to hedge to our advantage. And again, I think this mineral security partnership is a is a good step in the right direction. 
Um, but but there's much more that needs to be done, I think, along similar lines. Ambassador Pham, um, Alexandra mentioned um, shared norms and values. And, and one thing that comes to mind when we talk about Chinese investment, particularly in the mining sector, is the significant lack of transparency. And in many cases, real serious human rights uh, violations and abuses. You mentioned the cobalt mines in Congo earlier in this discussion. Um, and there's really allegations that that is essentially slavery. Um, so how could American participation in the mining sector contribute not only to the national security piece that we've been describing, but to peace and stability on the African continent? Uh, on a number of levels. First, by providing jobs. Uh, Africa's got a huge youth bulge, and and finding gainful employment uh, for these people is absolutely key. Uh, second, no economy is going to... Uh, do well without value added and capturing the value. And there is an opportunity where, you know, to borrow a Chinese phrase that's overused, where there's a real win-win. The political reality is that getting permitting for processing in America is, you know, a, I'm not a domestic policy expert, but it takes a great deal of time and more time than we have. Uh, whereas in Africa, uh, you know, the governments are eager for these value and to capture the value chain and to have these jobs. So this is a win-win. Uh, we're taking the processing away from China, doing it in Africa, hopefully in a cleaner way because uh, we're more transparent. Uh, we have shareholders who uh, rise up in arms if their shares are tied to uh, things that are controversial or to uh, human rights norms being violated or environmental norms. So we do bring an improvement just by our participation in that and shedding light on that. I think so there is an opportunity where America can do well, securing its access, but helping its African partners as well. I often, um, in this series, um, we focus on on the threats and, and the advantages that China has been gaining over the United States. Um, I'd like to, if we can, end on a somewhat positive note. So last question for for each of you. Um, what do you consider the sort of most promising new opportunities for the United States as it relates to engagement in Africa? Now, whether it's being pursued or not um, doesn't matter to me, but just what what do you see as the sort of most exciting new uh, things that we can be doing uh, with Africa? It's Africa to me is the one part uh, of the globe where America's brand is still good. As Alexander pointed out earlier, uh, especially among young people, uh, uh, they still they aspire to be like America. No one really aspires to be like China. Uh, so we've got soft power still there. Uh, during the Bush administration, uh, programs like the President's Emergency Program for AIDS, or PEPFAR, which has saved countless millions of African lives, uh, have gained extraordinary soft power for the United States. Uh, the so the attractiveness of that the opportunities that so we 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 have an opening but it's a narrow one because of these aspirations are not met if these aspirations are rebuffed uh then there's a very different future but we still have an opportunity to shape a future that aligns with our interests but also the aspirations of africa's growing youth population and i think that opportunity to get it right geopolitically and ethically I think is, to me, uh, uh, one of the things that makes my work fulfilling. Alexandra, same question to you. 
I think, you know, singing the tune of the youth as well, one thing that we perhaps didn't touch on so much today is the technological innovation and the enthusiasm for technology, um, really, and almost across the across the continent. And you have young entrepreneurs, African entrepreneurs who are innovating in health tech, in, you know, fintech, in, in everything tech. And there's a real opportunity there, I think, as well, perhaps also a narrow one, because China is also engaging, of course, in, in uh, across, that, across that sector, um, but a real opportunity for um, American tech, uh, uh, Silicon Valley, other entrepreneurs to, to come in to forge partnerships, uh, knowledge, knowledge exchange, joint ventures, whatever that might look like. And in that way, begin to, uh, uh, to like Ambassador Fan said, you know, continue to elevate America's brand, which is still by and large well received, and and really playing to to the youth. So focusing not just on on Africa, let's say today, but also kind of the future Africa, and and where the young generation aspires to and and wants to take it. Uh, and I think that there's a, a real opportunity from the tech perspective, and also from the soft power kind of cultural media film. Um, engaging in in those dimensions um, as well, um, which we we do to some extent, but there's a lot more that that could be done. Nigeria has has a budding um, film industry, Nollywood. There are many opportunities for um, our, you know U.S. counterparts to to come in in a in a meaningful way as well. Um, so uh, there are many pockets left for us yet. I'm very happy that we could end on a on a positive note. Um, in the past, I've asked that question about other regions, and sometimes the answer is, well, you know, it's not looking so great. So I'm glad that there are some opportunities here. Yep. Ambassador Alexandra, thank you so much for joining us today um, and sharing your insights on China's involvement in Africa and ways that the United States can best counter it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Countering Chinese Communist Party Influence Around the World. We hope you found today's exploration of competition with China informative and thought-provoking. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to like, subscribe, rate, and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. To stay up to date on our work and connect with us, subscribe to our newsletter, Beyond the Water's Edge, and follow us on X at, at Vandenberg Co. You can also visit our website at VandenbergCoalition.org for additional resources and exclusive content. Until next time, I'm Carrie Filippetti, and this is the Vandenberg Coalition's Countering Chinese Communist Party Influence Around the World.